Jesus is standing before the crowd as they shout, crucify, crucify, crucify him. It's Friday, the the final day of his earthly life. Everything in the the first 33 years of his existence, all of his life, everything he was born for, everything he was destined for, the mission, the task, the calling, the purpose that God had set before him was leading up to this very moment in all of history. It was his destiny. If you're joining us for the first time today, we are in week four of a series titled The Final Week. And over the last several weeks, we've been looking at the the life of Jesus and specifically the the events that unfold in the final seven days of his life, the the final week of his life, what's sometimes referred to as Holy Week. And we began by talking about that Sunday of that week began as a day full of hope and anticipation and excitement. It's called Palm Sunday, the day that Jesus rides into the city of Jerusalem, this ancient city that is overcrowded and occupied with hundreds of thousands of pilgrims who have come to celebrate the Passover. And he rides in and the crowd is looking for him, anticipating him, longing for him to bring hope and freedom and break the oppressive rule of the Roman government free them from their taxes and they're waving palm branches, they're throwing down their cloaks, they're shouting, they're exclaiming, they're begging him to save them. And then on the next day, Monday, he visits the local temple and he notices that the the religious leaders are are using the tables, the way way that's set up for the sacrifices, they're using it to make a financial gain and in this this rare moment of Jesus's holy discontent, his righteous anger, he gets angry and frustrated and flips over the tables and begins to have an argument, a conversation with these religious leaders about how they were dishonoring his father, God, his father's house. And then throughout the rest of the week, he spends time continuing what he had been doing for the past three years, healing people, teaching people. It's a a, a busy week. He's going from place to place to place, doing things, constantly on the move. And then we get to Thursday. And Thursday in Scripture is painted as this, this picture of a calm before the storm. Jesus takes his closest 12 followers, his disciples, And he goes up to this, some sort of upper room, this this place, and he has an intimate meal with them. He he sits down with them and he delivers his his final teachings, his, his, his last words to his followers, instructing them how to live life once he is gone. And he takes some bread and some wine and he institutes a new covenant. And then he gets up from that table and he leaves the city of Jerusalem out the eastern wall down through a valley by the name of Kidron up into a little mountain called the Mount of Olives where he finds a garden of olive trees, the Garden of Gethsemane. And in this moment of pure humanness, pure, maybe a Jesus we've never seen any other where any other place in scripture. He, he drops to his knees and with his closest friends, he's begging them to pray for him because he realizes the task, the mission, the purpose of his entire existence is going to be painful. And then one of his followers, Judas, who has now betrayed him, enters into this garden with armed soldiers. He walks up to Jesus and he, he gives him a kiss 
And immediately they, they arrest Jesus and they take him to different from, from, for the rest of the night from trial to trial through a series of six different trials, three Jewish trials and three Roman trials, going from place to place, hoping with desperately that they can build this case that he is an insurrection person. He is causing anarchy and they want him killed. And that leaves us on Friday, the final day of his earthly life. Everything his existence has been pointing to, everything we knew was coming, his death. And here's, what I, here's what's interesting about Friday in scripture. It's a day that is uncomfortable. In fact, I would, I would venture to say that this morning, whatever campus you are looking at, there are gonna be moments today that make you feel uncomfortable. There are moments where you're gonna feel pain. But here's what we see in scripture, is that in order to celebrate, to understand the beauty and the grace of the resurrection, we have to go through the pain and the heartache of the crucifixion. And so this morning, we begin where Jesus is standing before a crowd, and they're chanting, crucify, crucify, Crucify him. And Pilate, the Roman governor of the region, unsure what to do in this moment because he's already questioned Jesus and he, he doesn't see a guilty thing in him. And so he says, maybe to appease the crowd, he says, what would you have me do? Because every year at the Passover, I release a criminal. I release someone to you. I can release Jesus or I can release this known murderer, this person who has committed capital offenses by the name of Barabbas. I can release one of them. Who do you choose today? And the crowd immediately begins chanting, Barabbas, Barabbas, Barabbas. And Pilate, taken, taken back by this, a little bit caught off guard, then asked the crowd, as he re releases Barabbas, he asked the crowd, then what would you have me do with this guy by the name of Jesus? And again, the crowd begins chanting, crucify, crucify. The very same crowd that just five days before was yelling, save us, save us, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, is now saying, crucify, Crucify, crucify. And so Pilate, doing his duty, doing his job, takes Jesus, releases Barabbas, and takes Jesus and turns him over to a group of Roman soldiers, about 20 or 30 soldiers. And immediately upon seizing Jesus, they take him and they handcuff him and they put a blindfold on his eyes. And just, just imagine for a moment the, the vulnerability of being blindfolded by a group of soldiers knowing that something painful is coming, but you no longer can anticipate or see it. Imagine the vulnerability of knowing that at any moment anything could happen to you that would be heartbreaking, that would be hurtful, that would be painful, and you have no way of anticipating or knowing what is coming. You just have to sit there and take it. And the Roman soldiers, as they surround him, they begin punching him. They begin punching him, punch after punch, blow after blow. And Roman soldiers at the time, especially ones that worked near the temple, the ones who were higher in rank, they wore these things called signet rings. 
And, and a signet ring was basically a ring that was made out of a jagged rock, and it had some sort of emblem on it, usually the emperor or something in their family crest or something, to where they would use it as kind of a, a status symbol. Sometimes they would seal the back of letters with it with wax, but it was this bulky, jagged, rock-type ring, and as they begin to punch Jesus blindfolded, the ring is digging into him. Blow after blow, punch after punch. And then when they feel like they've had enough fun, they pause for a moment and one of the soldiers begins to spit in his face. Maybe one of the, the most degrading things that a human being can do to another human being, they spit in the face of the Son of God. And then they start making fun of him. Demanding, he's blindfolded, demanding prophesy. Like predict the future. Tell, tell us who hit you. You can't see, but you're the, you're the son of God, right? You're the, you're the guy who's going to change everything. Prophesy. And they would hit him and say, tell us who hit you. Tell us, prophesy. Come on. Tell us who did this thing to you. As they continue punching this blindfolded man by the name of Jesus saying, tell us who did it. Prophesy, prophesy, prophesy. John 19, 1 through 3 says this. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. It's interesting that when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the the four writers of the Gospels, right, the, the biographical accounts of Jesus' life, they all just kind of casually say this statement. They just say, and then Pilate had him flogged. There's no details. There's no information. It's, it's just assumed that every person reading this and hearing this, why? Because their audience is a first century Jewish audience or maybe even a first century Roman audience or a first century Greek audience and all of those nations were familiar with the atrocities that come from flogging and crucifixion so they didn't have to provide any details because it was well known exactly what would happen in the very next moment. You see, the crucifixion had been around for about 300 years at this point. It was invented, most scholars would say, there's, there's a little debate, but most scholars would say it was invented by the, the Persians, the Persian Empire, 300 years before the death of Jesus. And about 100 years before the death of Jesus, 200 years after the Persians had invented it, the, the Roman Empire, Rome, kind of took it on as one of their major forms of punishment for capital crimes. And so while the Persians invented it, the Romans were ones in history who really perfected the art of crucifixion. And they perfected it so much, they had it down to such a science on how they would use this, this execution tool that they really did reserve it for only two classes, maybe three classes of citizens, those who were slaves and those who were guilty of insurrection against the Roman government. But everyone, when Scripture says that Pilate took him and had him flogged, everyone would have immediately known what happened. They would have immediately taken Jesus and stripped him naked for everyone to see. Just vulnerable. They would have taken his hands to a post, usually about five or six feet tall, and they would have chained him to it like this, not, not down low, but up high so that his body would be stretched. 
And then they would grab these whips. And there were three different types of whips that would be used as part of this flogging procedure. And the first one was just kind of a, a stick that was still green so that it had some bend to it and its flex to it. And they would begin hitting the Son of God, hitting Jesus, the criminal, whoever it was, across their back to begin the process of flogging. And then uh, another soldier, and there would be one on each side of this post. And while this one is hitting with the green stick, this one would grab a new whip, and they would pause for a second. And this soldier would grab this whip that was about four feet long, and it was made of these leather straps out of, out of sheep or cow. And they, they kind of hung down, and tied within the leather straps were these metal balls that were almost the size of a golf ball. And it said that when they would hit with this whip, the balls, after two or three lashes would begin to cause bruises to form on the back so that the next hit would burst those bruises open. And after four or five or six or seven lashes with this one, the soldier on the other side would grab a different whip. This whip was also four or five feet long and it would have leather straps hanging down as well, but instead of balls tied into this one, it would have fragments of sheep bone. And the way this one worked is after this one on this side has been hitting with the metal balls, causing the bruising and causing them to burst, this one on this side would begin to hit and whip. And as he did, the bone fragments would dig into the flesh and get stuck. And the only way for the soldier to get it out would be to rip it and yank it back out. Now imagine blow after blow after blow. Tied there helplessly. Blow after blow after blow. It was common by the time they got to around the 25th or the 30th lash, they would usually go to 39 and then stop. As they got to the 25th or the 30th, the back would be so lacerated that internal organs would begin to be exposed. And in their, their fury, in their anger, the soldiers would be so aggressive that at times they would miss the back and hit the shoulders or the neck, severing nerves. But blow after blow after blow Isaiah 53, 5, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement or punish for our peace was on him. And by his stripes, or some versions say wounds, and, and in Hebrew, the language of this Isaiah in the Old Testament, it, it, it's this beautiful imagery. It says, by the striped wounds that are cut in, we are healed. Sort of brings new meaning to that verse, right? His entire backside is exposed. The ground, as you can imagine, is probably covered and blood. At some point during this, this 
atrocity, at some point during this, this brutal display of, of Roman might, at some point Jesus probably most likely, because the way it happened for almost all people in history, was they would have, some, at one point, just their body would have begun to give out and they would have stumbled and fell and collapsed, but the chains holding them on would keep them elevated as the soldiers continuously lashed into them over and over and over again until they get right up to the point of death. And this is where Rome had perfected this. They knew where death was immediate and where it was prolonged, and they would stop right at the moment of death because they were not ready for the criminal to die. And they would pause. And for Jesus, they, they grab him, the soldiers untie him from this post and they sort of move him over out of the way and they put this robe over his lacerated body to protect him from the dirt and the elements in that moment. And it's this purple robe and they give him a stick to be his scepter and they take a crown of thorns, a specific type of thorn that only grows in, in Palestine and over in Israel and it had thorns that were any from one and a half to three inches in length depending on how mature the crown was and they made it into this crown and they put it on his head and they began mocking him saying, hail, king of the Jews. Hail, king of the Jews. Hail, king of, hail the one who's going to save everyone from us. Hail the king of the Jews. And then after they've had their fun, scripture says they, they grab the stick back and begin hitting him with it. Each blow, I have to assume, when you're hitting someone with a stick and they, they have a crown of thorns on their head, each blow is going to push those thorns deeper and deeper into an already mutilated and abused and, and hurtful body. And it would be painful and painful and painful and it would get worse and worse and worse with each blow to the head because it's pushing the thorns deeper and deeper into his skin. just like 15 or 18 hours before this, he was with his closest friends and he took bread and broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. And he took a cup of wine and poured it and said, this is my blood poured out for you. And this was just the beginning. Immediately after this, because they wanted to have the crucifixion occur by a certain time so they could return to their families that evening, the Roman soldiers would give Jesus a crossbeam, a board that is about four or six inches square about eight feet long, maybe six feet long, but usually eight feet long, weighed anywhere from 120 to 150 pounds. And they would say, carry it. And as Jesus would have bent over, his, his body already mutilated in intense amounts of pain, as he bends over to grab this board, he can see on it that it's rough, it's not smooth, it's jagged, it has holes, and it also has the stains of the blood and the dirt and the sweat from everyone who has previously been executed on this board because Rome didn't want to waste a board for a new criminal each and every time. And so he bends down and he picks up this board and now we'll pause for a second because the cross that we usually see in our paintings and our pictures and our Hollywood films is usually a cross that looks kind of the traditional cross that we think of. 
But, but in reality, most scholars, most historians who have, who have researched the, the art form of crucifixion that said Jesus or anyone being crucified would not have carried such a cross because such a cross would have been anywhere between 380 and 450 pounds to carry and it's impossible for someone in the state that the person who has been flogged to carry something like that. And also, the cross that we see that has the, the apex at the top of the vertical post is actually a Latin cross that comes later when the Roman Catholic Church began to use it as iconography. The cross that most likely was used to, to crucify Jesus was a simple cross beam that he would have carried, and there was already a vertical post waiting for him at Calvary at Golgotha, and they would lift him up and make a T, a Roman cross, which looks more like a T. And so Jesus picks up this cross beam, this, this beam that weighs between 100 and 150 pounds, is six to eight feet long, and he begins to hoist it up on his shoulders, the, the lacerated, torn open, bloody shoulders, and he begins to carry it through the ancient city of Jerusalem, passing the crowd that had just days before had been celebrating him, had been cheering for him, had been hopeful that he was the one who would come and make things right. And he had to walk 800 yards, eight football fields to a place called Golgotha, just outside the city. And on his way, as he's going there, and you can imagine, he, some point his body gives out. The weight, the pain, the stress of carrying this after what has just happened. And he falls. And the Roman soldiers who are desperate to get this done because they have things they want to go do. They have other things to take care of and this is just a job they have to do. They recruit someone from the crowd by the name of Simon and they say, Simon, your job is to help him carry this. And so Simon, this foreigner, this person who was not known in any other part of scripture is told to carry the cross with Jesus, to bear the burden for him as they walk and march their way to Golgotha. And upon arrival at this place of the skull, the soldiers take Jesus and they drop the crossbeam on the ground and they put him on the crossbeam as well. And they pull out these nails, these stakes, these spikes. They would have been seven to eight inches long. They would have been square except for a point on the end. And they would take him and hold an arm out and nail it through his wrist. Now, I know in Hollywood, they nail in the hands. But according to his history, according to histor historians, a nail through the hand, and you're gonna see this in a second, would not support the weight of a body. The palm would rip. They knew they needed somewhere stronger and sturdier to hold the weight of the body. And so they would put it right through the bones in the wrist. And you may say, but Adam, like, why, why does our Bible say hand when he shows Thomas the, the holes in his hand? Because in Koine Greek, the language of the New Testament, everything from here to here is the exact same word. And so it's one word for all of this. Koine Greek does not distinguish between hand and palm and elbow and arm. It's all one word. And so Jesus would have had this nail driven right through his wrist. Now, I don't know about you, but there are times in my life where I've hit my elbow on something and my funny bone hurt and it stings and it's like, oh, that's the worst pain in the world. The nerve when you hit that is called the median nerve. And the median nerve runs right through your wrist. And so the Roman soldiers knew 
stretch out the arm, nail it in the wrist, and it is going to be searing pain. And it was so searing and infuriating pain that the hand would immediately paralyze because of the severed nerve. And then they would take the other arm and do the same. The pain was said to be so intense at this moment that Rome didn't even know what to call it. So Rome made up a word, a Latin word, excruciating, which means ex, out of, or from, cruciate, the cross. They made up an entire word just to describe the intense amount of pain that comes when someone is being crucified on the cross. And once they have his arms or his, his, his wrist nailed in and spread on this beam, they would then have to hoist the body up onto the, the vertical post that is already in the ground. And to do this, they couldn't just very casually kind of lift it up because it was heavy. And so most scholars believe that on the top of the vertical post that always stayed on the hillside, wherever it happened to be, on the top of the vertical post was a small little pulley system. And they would then take two ropes and tie it onto the crossbeam and run the ropes through the pulley system so that the person who is being crucified is laying there with the ropes and the soldiers would get behind the vertical post and they would then go one, two, three, yank. And as they would pull, it would raise the, it would raise the crossbeam up the vertical post. Now, now, picture this for a minute. The only thing holding Jesus to this crossbeam are the nails in his hands. So every time they one, two, three, yank, you have this uh, pulling on the wrist where the median nerve is. And they hoist him and hoist him and hoist him until snap, the crossbeam locks into the vertical post. And he's hanging there. And this is when the real pain started. They take his feet and they put a stake through him. And the way crucifixion was designed, it was designed so that your body began to slouch from the weight of the wrist. And this is why scripture tells us when prophesying about Jesus, it says, my bones were stretched. And the only way for the person hanging on the cross, because of the way the, the, the wrist would begin to sag and the feet down here, the only way for them to catch their breath, to take a breath, because their, their body would begin to, they would breathe air out and not be able to take it in. They would have to take where their, their feet are with the nail through it and on the wrist where the pain is, and they would have to push and pull. And with each time, gasp. <gasps> Just to breathe over and over and over again. Jesus hung there for six hours, gasping for breath after breath until it began to get dark. And as the soldiers and the people gathered, are laughing and mocking and cheering. He looks upward and says, Father, 
forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And then, with each breath gasping, (gasps) he pushes and he pulls with all of his mind and he screams out at the top of his lungs, Eli, Eli, lama sabatani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Father, why have you turned your back on me? Father, why is your presence not with me in this moment? And then, with one final breath, it is finished. And the King of Kings, the creator of the universe, dies. There was a moment when the lights went out When death had claimed its victory The king of love had given up his life The darkest day in history There on a cross they made for sin One final breath and it was finished But not the end we could have known For the earth began to shake And the veil was torn What a sacrifice was made At the heavens I know I probably shouldn't admit this publicly, so grace in this moment. But there are a lot of times in life I really want things to be fair and people to get what they deserve. 
Maybe you're much holier than I am. But for instance, I can be driving down the road, minding my business, only going a couple miles an hour over the speed limit. And somebody will come flying past me. And it frustrates me. But then 15 minutes later, when I see them pulled over on the side of the road, I think, yes. I'm with my family in the car, and I'm like, look at that over there. And I start dancing in the car. I'm like, look what they did. Look what happened to them. Because why? Because I want life to be fair. They chose to speed. They got what they deserved. Right? We, we see this in our children, for those of you that are parents. We don't have to teach them about fairness. Kids immediately learn, that's not fair, that's not fair, that's not fair. They learn that there are consequences. You get, there are consequences based on your actions. We live in a society where we get what we deserve. And here's, here's the beauty of the story of the crucifixion. It's when Jesus was, was hanging on that cross, when he was gasping for breath, when he was struggling for that air, he was not only by himself, but there were two other criminals with him. And in Luke chapter 22, we see this, this conversation that happens between Jesus and these two criminals. And I want to show you this in Luke chapter 22, verses 39. It says, one of the criminals who, hur- who hung there hurled insults at him. So he looks at Jesus and he says, aren't you the Messiah? Like, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. This this criminal doesn't want what he deserves. He looks at Jesus and he says, save yourself. Like, come on, save yourself. You're, You're all powerful. You can do whatever you want. Save yourself and save us. Set us free. Be the person who makes things better for me. But the other criminal rebuked him or got onto him. And look what he says. He says, don't you fear God since you are under the same sentence Verse 41, for we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. And let me just say, every single one of us, all of humanity, we deserve what Jesus took. That's our sin. That's our selfishness. That's our rebellion. That's our pride. Every lash, every nail, every breath is us. And in this moment, if Jesus was fair, if Jesus believe that people got what they deserve. His interaction with this criminal would have been much different, but look what happened instead. This criminal says, we are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he says, Jesus, remember me when you come in to your kingdom. And Jesus, Jesus doesn't look at this criminal and say, nah, like you're too sinful. 
He doesn't look at this criminal and say, you've gone too far, you've messed up too much, you've made too many mistakes, you, you've done more than enough, there's, there's, there's no saving you, there's no point. He doesn't look at this criminal and say, listen, you can't be baptized, listen, you can't join the church, listen, you can't give enough money. He doesn't say any of those things. In fact, he looks at this criminal and look at what he says in verse 42, one of the most powerful verses in all of scripture, verse 43, I mean, he looks at him and Jesus answered and says, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Even though we didn't deserve it, he has forgiveness. Even though it's not fair, he has forgiveness. That is the beauty of the crucifixion. That is the beauty of the gospel. Is that every single one of us deserved death. But God, in his mercy, in his goodness, and in his love, didn't give us what we deserve. His son took it for us. That's what makes Good Friday so good. Listen to Psalm 120, or Psalm 103, it says this. He does not punish us for all of our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. For his unfailing love towards those who fear him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. And he has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. Church, why do we celebrate the crucifixion? Because it's God taking our punishment and offering freely to us new life, even when we don't deserve it. And that is good news. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful we are overwhelmed. We are, we are speechless at your mercy. God, when we deserve death, you give us life. God, this morning, we just wanna take a moment and pause and celebrate that. That you are a God who saves. Not only did you save us for those of us that follow you, but you continually point us back to you even in the midst of our mistakes and our failures and our hiccups and our hangups and our habits. God, we don't deserve what you offer. Maybe you're here this morning and as we're in this moment of prayer, whatever campus you are at, if you're being just really honest, you would say, man, I don't know about this whole Jesus thing. And here's what I want you to know. You are not here by accident. You are not here by mistake. There is a God who loves you so much that someone invited you or you randomly showed up 
to hear that you don't get what you deserve when you live with him. And maybe today you wanna believe that, that Jesus died for your sins, that he was crucified for you. If that's you, whatever campus you are at, would you just be bold enough and brave enough to slip up your hand as an act of surrender to Jesus for the first time? If your hand is raised, I want you to, to pray this prayer with me. Father, I am a sinner. Jesus, come into my life. Make me new. Save me. Be my king. Be my Lord. Jesus, I turn, I repent, and turn to you. Amen.